Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications, Vogue and Smithsonian Magazine. We're going to start off today's African American Hour with a story from the Washington Post. The title is, After 246 Years, Marines Set for Their First Black Four-Star General. It was written by Rachel Chasson and Dan Lamoth. It was published July 20th, 2022. The subtitle to this article is Lieutenant General Michael E. Langley, whose confirmation hearing is scheduled for Thursday, has been tapped to lead the U.S. forces in Africa. In the late 1980s, Major Ronald Bailey met a young Marine he knew had promise. Michael E. Langley was a powerlifter who dominated flag football games, an intellectual who set records for how many training courses he wrote, and a problem solver whose bosses frequently tapped him to mediate workplace disputes. Langley, then a first lieutenant, was also one of a few young black Marines based at prestigious downtown D.C. barracks. Bailey, who went on to become a three-star general, took note. He said he offered Langley advice based on his own experience and that of black Marines who had mentored him. You will live under a microscope, Bailey recalls telling Langley. You must always set the standard. More than three decades later, Langley will be under the microscope yet again after being nominated to lead all U.S. military forces in Africa as chief of United States Africa Command. His Senate confirmation hearing is Thursday, and if he's confirmed, Langley would become the first black person to receive four stars since the founding of the United States Marine Corps 246 years ago. Over that time, more than 70 white men have risen to the Marines' highest ranks. Aside from Bailey, a handful of black men have become three-star generals in the Marine Corps. Other black officers have attained four stars in the Army, Air Force, and Navy. But in the Marine Corps, black service members saw no one who looked like them in the top echelons of leadership and sometimes doubted whether it was possible. As you looked at the horizon, you saw the end, said retired Lieutenant General Walter Gaskin, the fourth black man to be elevated to a three-star general. You didn't see what was over the horizon because no one was there. Langley has served in Afghanistan, Somalia, and Japan. He has held top jobs at the Pentagon and led United States Marine Corps forces Europe and Africa. He currently oversees Marine forces on the East Coast. Gaskin described himself as a straightforward, deeply competent, and not the beating-on-the-table kind of Marine. You have all the credentials in the world, Gaskin told Langley. No one can doubt you deserve this. But there are others who also deserve a four-star, Gaskin said. He said Lieutenant General Frank Peterson, who was the first black Marine to become a three-star general in 1986, was an example of someone who no doubt should have been elevated to a four-star general. That's why this moment is not just one of profound pride, Gaskin said. It is also a reminder of the obstacles that kept it from arriving sooner. He said he has told Langley directly, you carry the legacy the weight of all those who came before you who didn't have the same opportunities. Retired Lieutenant General Willie Williams, the third black Marine to receive three stars, said, commitment to purpose and perseverance shared by Langley and so many other black Marines led to his promotion. Even right now, I get chills thinking about it, retired Lieutenant General Ronald Coleman, the second black Marine to receive three stars, said of Langley's promotion. 
Langley declined an interview for this story, with a spokesman saying the general is focused on the Senate confirmation hearing. If confirmed, Langley would be based in Stuttgart, Germany, assuming control of roughly 6,000 U.S. troops in Africa, including about 1,300 in West Africa and about 3,500 at a base in Djibouti, a spokeswoman said. He would replace Army General Stephen Townsend, who is retiring. U.S. forces are mostly engaged in training African militaries and helping build their capacities. Direct combat is rare, but deadly attacks in recent years on U.S. soldiers in Niger and Kenya led to increased scrutiny from U.S. lawmakers of the mission. Under President Biden, hundreds of special operations troops are again to be deployed this year to Somalia. President Donald Trump withdrew all U.S. troops from Somalia before leaving office. Michael O'Hanlon, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, said the U.S. military in Africa faces unique challenges. Instead of confronting a single threat, the United States is focused on helping governments address a variety of challenges tied to climate change, population growth, and political instability. Insurgencies in the Sahel region, along with the growing presence of Russian mercenaries, are of chief concern to the United States. The question that Langley and other leaders should be asking, O'Hanlon said, is where can you meaningfully make a difference without putting in tons of forces or incurring liabilities? Langley was briefly based in Stuttgart, leading the United States Marine Corps forces Europe and Africa beginning in November 2020 after his predecessor was removed amid allegations of using a racial slur for black Americans in front of troops. Langley declined to comment on the allegations against his predecessor at the time, telling Stars and Stripes in an interview that the military, like society in general, was still evolving when it came to issues related to race. Retired General Robert Neller, the Marine Corps Commandant from September 2015 to July 2019, said Langley is often reserved, but also can be engaging and warm, drawing others to him. He gets stuff done, and people tend to like working for him, Neller said. Among the generals, Langley is known as a quiet professional who listens more than he talks, said retired Lieutenant General H. Stacy Clardy III, who worked with Langley at various points, including the Pentagon. Clardy counted Langley among the people on whom he could rely, saying he found Langley's judgment to be flawless. One of Langley's most formative experiences growing up, he has told friends and mentors, was his father's decision to retire from his post as a non-commissioned officer in the Air Force. Willie C. Langley did so after his superiors told him he'd have to be deployed overseas again. That move would have taken him away from Langley and his siblings, for whom he was the primary caregiver after their mother's death. Langley frequently tells that story, noting that he would not be the person he is today without his father's decision to put his children before his career, Bailey said. When Langley learned years later that he had become a general, earning his first star, his initial response was, I can't wait to tell my dad, Bailey recall. In May, Langley gathered with many of the other three-star generals as an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, that's spelled capital A-R-L-E-I-G-H, capital B-U-R-K-E, to be based at Pearl Harbor was commissioned in honor of Peterson, the first black Marine aviator and three-star general. There were rumors of Langley's nomination circling, said Williams, the third black Marine to receive three stars. 
but it was too early to talk openly about the possibility. Instead, Williams said he thought about the past that had made the moment possible, beginning with Gilbert Hashmark Johnson, who was one of the first black men to enlist in the Marines after the force began to integrate in 1942. Williams thought about the future and how many young Marines would be able to see themselves in Langley and dream bigger. And he thought about the responsibility that Langley and other black Marines continue to bear. We live standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, he said, and then we provide shoulders for others to stand on. That was a reading of the article. After 246 years, Marines set for their first black four-star general. This story appeared in the Washington Post at the WashingtonPost.com website. It was written by Rachel Chasson and Dan Lamoth and was published July 20th, 2022. Next on today's African American Hour is an article from the July-August 2022 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. The title is South to the Promised Land. It was written by Richard Grant. Diana Cardenas, a high school English teacher from Far, Texas, the spell capital P-H-A-R-R, stands in her small family cemetery between the Rio Grande and the new border wall. Stylishly dressed and coiffed, wilting slightly in the heat and humidity, she holds up a photograph of her grandmother. Her name was Adela Jackson, and we were close, she says. She loved to come here and tell me stories about our family history and all the runaway slaves we helped and took across the river into Mexico. Until recently, the southbound Underground Railroad, as some scholars call it, has been largely overlooked mainly because it left so few traces in surviving records. No one who escaped slavery by going to Mexico wrote a first-hand account of the experience as Frederick Douglass and others did about escaping north. Nor were they interviewed by researchers or recruited by anti-slavery organizations. And though the journeys of enslaved people to Mexico are of the utmost importance, the scale of the Southern migration was more modest, numbering between 3,000 and 10,000 people, compared with an estimated 30,000 to 100,000 who fled north of the Mason-Dixon line. But in recent years, scholars have begun to uncover a wealth of information about the southbound freedom seekers. For example, they've learned that while there was no organized network of assistance, no celebrated conductors like Harriet Tubman guiding them to the next safe haven, slaves escaping to Mexico did sometimes receive help along the way. Diana Cardenas's great-great-great-grandfather, who died in obscurity, was among the staunchest allies of slaves escaping south. He was a white man from Alabama named Nathaniel Jackson, says Cardenas. He married a slave that he freed, Matilda Hicks, and they came out here in covered wagons in 1857. She already had three children by another man, and she had seven more with Nathaniel. Cardenas produces a faded, blurry, copied photograph of Matilda Hicks, her great-great-great-grandmother, as an old woman, tall and thin and wearing a white dress. Nathaniel bought 5,535 acres of land right here by the river and established the Jackson Ranch, says Cardenas. There were black, white, and mixed-race people all living together raising cattle in a place that was very remote where they could be left alone. The runaways knew they could get help here, food, clothing, and work if they wanted it. 
Nathaniel was a nice, generous, courageous man, a humanitarian. He would cross them into Mexico in boats. The history of southbound runaways, preserved in scattered fragments, presents scholars with enormous challenges of research and interpretation. Perhaps no one has done more to advance our understanding than a historian named Alice Baumgartner. In 2012, as a Rhodes Scholar studying violence on the U.S.-Mexico border in the early and mid-19th century, she was hunting through state and municipal archives in northern Mexico. She found plenty of documents about cattle rustling and Lipan Apache raids, capital L-I-P-A-N. But she also came across records of a completely unexpected kind of violence between American slave catchers crossing the Rio Grande and Mexicans who fought against them. It really caught my attention because I didn't know that enslaved people were escaping into Mexico and I never would have suspected that Mexican citizens and officials were protecting them, says Baumgartner, now an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California. She was particularly struck by the story of Manuel Luis del Fierro of Reynosa in the state of Tamaulipas, who was startled awake by screaming in the night of August 20th, 1850. He threw off the covers, grabbed his rifle, and confronted two men in his living room. One was waving a pistol at his wife's maid, a young black woman named Matilda Hennis, who had escaped slavery in Louisiana, made the long, dangerous journey to Mexico, and became a valued member of Del Fierro's household. Pointing his rifle at the kidnappers, Del Fierro ordered them to surrender. One got away, but the other, William Cheney of Cheneyville, Louisiana, who claimed Hennis as his property under U.S. law, was arrested by the Reynosa police, imprisoned for nearly a month, and sent home empty-handed. That incident was not unusual, Baumgartner discovered. She read the correspondence of four councilmen from the Mexican border town of Guerrero who pursued, shot, and killed a slaveholder who had kidnapped a runaway. In 1851, the residents of another village in the state of Coahuila took up arms to stop a slave catcher named Warren Adams from abducting a black family. Months later, the Mexican army posted a sizable force and two artillery pieces on the Rio Grande to prevent a group of 200 Texans from crossing the border to seize runaway slaves. Baumgartner kept uncovering information that surprised and fascinated her. After independence from Spain in 1821, Mexico passed these really radical anti-slavery laws and Mexicans at all levels of society were serious about enforcing them, she told me recently. This was well known by enslaved people on the U.S. side of the border. Indeed, more than three quarters of the fugitive slaves caught in Texas between 1837 and 1861, she learned from a database of runaway slave notices, were heading to Mexico. Baumgartner went on to search 28 archives in three countries, Mexico, the United States, and Britain, and wrote the first full-length book about the subject, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War. The book, published in 2020, was lauded for its groundbreaking historical insights and panoramic sweep. Masterfully researched, wrote a reviewer for the New York Times, Publishers Weekly called it an eye-opening and immersive account. Black Perspectives, the digital publication of the African-American Intellectual Historical Society, argued that it made a convincing case that Mexico shaped the freedom dreams of enslaved people in states like Texas and Louisiana. At the heart of Baumgartner's study 
were a few simple questions. Why were enslaved people escaping to Mexico, she says? What did they find there? Why were Mexicans helping them? Felix Haywood of San Antonio, a former slave interviewed in 1937 for the Federal Writers Project, didn't himself try to escape south, but he heard stories about those who did, and he visited Mexico after the Civil War before returning to Texas. There wasn't no reason to run up north, he told the interviewer. All we had to do was walk, but walk south, and we'd be free as soon as we crossed the Rio Grande. In Mexico, you could be free. They didn't care what color you was, black, white, yellow, or blue. The earliest examples of slaves escaping south are from the 17th century. In the Carolinas, enslaved men and women ran away from rice plantations to Spanish Florida, where they were able to arm themselves against their former enslavers. In 1693, King Charles II of Spain decreed that all fugitive slaves would be free in Florida. In 1733, a caveat was added. To gain their freedom, fugitives had to convert to Catholicism and declare loyalty to the Spanish crown. In 1750, the same promise was extended to the entire viceroyalty of New Spain, which included all of present-day Mexico and nearly all of the American West plus Florida. After the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, the de facto border between the United States and New Spain was the Sabina River in present-day East Texas. This border was formalized in 1819. It's impossible to say how many enslaved people made it across the Sabina, but we know that slaveholders in Louisiana complained about escapes to New Spain. Thomas Mariette, a French historian at the University of Duisburg-Essen in Germany, has found evidence that 30 slaves from plantations on the Cane River near Nachadosis left for New Spain in October 1804. Nine crossed the Sabina River and a string of similar escape attempts followed. In January 1808, a black man recorded as Richard, presumably Richard, arrived at Trinidad del Salcedo, a small Spanish outpost near present-day Madisonville, Texas. He told his story to the authorities. His family had been split up by enslavers and scattered all over southern Louisiana. Having made his own escape from a plantation in Opelousas, he managed to find and rescue his wife and three of their seven children. He tried and failed to rescue the other four, then led his reduced family across more than 100 miles of swampy wilderness and crossed the Sabina River into freedom. Their fate in Spanish territory is unknown. Even though slavery existed in New Spain, American runaways were usually granted asylum by the Spanish authorities because the American form of slavery was regarded as far more brutal and dehumanizing. In New Spain, for example, slaves were subjects of the Spanish crown, not property, and it was illegal to separate husbands and wives or to impose excessive punishments. Richard declared that the harshness of American laws, as well as keeping his family together, were reasons for his escape. In 1821, after Mexico won its independence, it opened the northern frontier state of Tejas, as Texas was then called, to Anglo-American settlers. Many of these settlers brought black slaves and established American-style cotton plantations in present-day East Texas. 
This set up a conflict with the Mexican government, which banned the importation of enslaved people in 1824 on the principle of liberty for all. The Anglo colonists ignored the law or imposed lifetime contracts of indentured servitude on their black workers. The state of Cohila y Tejas responded by limiting indenture contracts to 10 years and guaranteeing liberty to the children of slaves in a so-called free womb law. In 1835, the Anglo settlers, bristling at these and other laws they regarded as oppressive, rose up in revolt. It's controversial, especially in Texas, but the historical profession is coming to a consensus that slavery was an important part of the Texas Revolution, said Baumgartner. In 1836, Texas won independence from Mexico and now an autonomous republic enshrined slavery in its constitution. Mexico fully abolished slavery the following year. In 1845, Texas joined the United States as a slave state. Then came the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. Defeat forced Mexico to relinquish all or parts of the present-day states of California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. This was the first time in history that the United States acquired territory where slavery was previously abolished by law, says Baumgartner. At the same time, Southern politicians attempted to expand slavery by annexing Cuba, where it was firmly entrenched, and by working to overturn the Missouri Compromise, which had prohibited slavery in much of the territory acquired in the Louisiana Purchase. When these and other efforts failed, succession and civil war followed. The idea that Mexico's anti-slavery laws not only encouraged African Americans to cross the southern border, but also ignited the Texas Revolution and inflamed the conflict between North and South that led to the Civil War is the essence of Baumgartner's groundbreaking argument. It reorders the way we should think and teach about the slavery expansion crisis. David Blight, the Yale historian and Pulitzer Prize winning author of 2018's Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, says... Indeed, it reorders how to think about the huge question of the coming of the American Civil War. In 1849, Mexico's Congress decreed that foreign slaves would become free by the act of stepping on the national territory. This soon became common knowledge among enslaved people in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, and what would later become Oklahoma. They envisioned what historian Michaela Audain capital M-E-K-A-L-A, capital A-U-D-A-I-N, calls a Mexican Canaan across the Rio Grande, a promised land where they could be free. They made the arduous journey through Texas. They stowed away on boats leaving from Galveston and New Orleans to Tampico and Veracruz. In the 1850s, a dozen slaves were reaching Matamoros, Mexico every month. 270 arrived in Laredo in Tamaulipas, now called Nueva Laredo, just across the border from Laredo, Texas. In a single year, American diplomats kept pressuring their Mexican counterparts to sign extradition treaties which would return runaway slaves to their owners. But Mexico flatly refused in 1850, 1851, 1853, and 1857. Audain, an associate professor at the College of New Jersey, is currently finishing a book about the experiences of enslaved African-Americans in the Texas-Mexico borderlands. 
One distinct aspect of escapes in Texas was navigating the terrain, she says. Depending on where they began their escapes, there could be limited shade and water, especially as they traveled south of San Antonio. A lack of trees also limited their abilities to camouflage themselves. There were several different routes to Mexico. Slaves escaping from Louisiana tended to go via Nachitoces to Houston and across the border to Matamoros. Another route went from the vicinity of Austin to San Antonio and then to Laredo to Tamaulipas or Piedra Negras in Coahuila. Using established roads or keeping them in sight made it easier to navigate but increased the likelihood of confrontation and capture. Most northbound runaways were on foot and unarmed, but many southbound freedom seekers, especially from Texas, rode horses and carried guns. It was a reflection of the culture and the most effective strategy, says Saudane. They could travel faster, defend themselves, and hunt for food. Escaping on horseback probably also helped to neutralize the much-feared bloodhounds and other slave-hunting dogs. The dogs had no clear human scent to follow and likely couldn't keep up with the horses over long distances. Kyle Ainsworth, a historian and special collections librarian who runs the Texas Runaway Slave Project at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, has calculated from runaway slave notices that 91% of Texas escapees were male with an average age of 28. Many women were responsible for raising their children, says Ainsworth. It was very difficult for enslaved people to run away with young children, although there are definitely a few examples where they tried. Baumgarter has noted the ingenuity many escaping slaves showed. They forged passes to give the impression they were traveling with the permission of their masters. They disguised themselves as white men, fashioned wigs from horse hair and pitch. They stole horses, firearms, skiffs, dirk knives, fur hats, and in one instance, 12 gold watches in a diamond breastpin. Some fugitives were helped by other slaves, free black people, Mexicans, Germans, and other sympathetic white people. But these allies operated independently of one another and risked being tarred, feathered, and hanged or shot for helping slaves escape. One former slave who made it to Chihuahua, Mexico, and was later captured, said mail carriers helped him escape but this appears to be an isolated example. For the great majority, the journey south was an improvisation, a wayfinding through an unknown and hostile geography. They lived by their wits on a constant knife edge of danger. For those on foot, the journey could take months, often pursued by their enslavers or hunted by slave patrols with a bounty on their heads that any citizen might attempt to collect. They had to find food and water and contend with the Texas climate well over 100 degrees in summer, and subject to sudden, freezing, blue norther storms in winter. Native Americans were another threat. The most dangerous part of the journey was the Nueces Strip, a 100 to 150-mile expanse of remote, thorny, rattlesnake-infested, brushy country between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande. It contained few roads or settlements, which made it hard to navigate and find food and very little water. There was no slavery this far south in Texas because the risk of slaves escaping to Mexico was too great. Black people were highly conspicuous and immediately suspected of being fugitives. The Nueces Strip was also where runaway slaves were most likely to encounter slave catchers, military patrols, Texas Rangers, and Indians, 
all of whom would capture them or worse, said Ainsworth. If they reached the Rio Grande near present-day far Texas, runaways could expect help and kindness from Nathaniel Jackson's and his neighbors. But the river ran for more than 1,000 miles along the international border, and most runaways reached it elsewhere. For Audain, the most affecting stories were those that ended with drownings in the Rio Grande. I think of all the effort they put into planning their escapes, walking hundreds of miles across Texas and managing to avoid kidnappers and patrols, she says. They somehow survived these challenges only for their journeys to end, not with freedom, but with death. Mariette, the French historian, uses the phrase conditional freedom to describe what runaway slaves found in Mexico. Alice Baumgartner compares it to the abridged freedom that runaways found north of the Mason-Dixon line, where the United States Constitution, through the Fugitive Slave Acts of 1793 and 1850, provided for their capture and return to slavery. In Mexico, federal law guaranteed freedom to runaways, but they were always at risk from North American slave hunters who crossed the border illegally and broke Mexican anti-slavery laws. Most runaways arrived in Mexico with little or no Spanish. A few were able to establish themselves as merchants, carpenters, and bricklayers in Matamoros or other cities. For the great majority, however, there were two options. They could find work as servants or day laborers on ranches and haciendas, or they could risk their lives once again by joining military colonies. These were fortified outposts established by the Mexican government to defend its northeast borderlands from devastating raids for livestock, captives, and plunder by Comanches and Lipan Apaches. In return for such military service, according to a law passed by Mexico's Congress in 1846, foreigners, including runaway slaves, would receive land and full citizenship. Historians know little about the experiences of African-Americans in these military colonies, with one significant exception. At a colony in Cohila were black Seminoles, descended from free black people and slaves who had run away from Georgia and the Carolinas and allied themselves with the Seminole Indians in Florida. They had fought with the tribe in the three Seminole Wars against the United States Army. When they were finally defeated, the Seminoles and Black Seminoles were forced into the Creek Reservation in Indian Territory in present-day Oklahoma, with most arriving by 1842. The Creeks denied the newcomers land and started capturing Black Seminoles and selling them into slavery in Arkansas and Louisiana. By 1849, says Baumgartner, the Seminoles and their Black allies had had enough. The Seminole leader Wildcat, with the assistance of John Horse, leader of the Black Seminoles, led more than 300 men, women, and children, including 84 Black Seminoles from Indian Territory south to Mexico. In northern Cohila, the Mexican government granted them a 70,000-acre military colony with work animals, agricultural equipment, and financial subsidies. Within months of arriving, Wildcat went back to Indian Territory and returned with about 40 more Seminole families and most of the remaining black Seminoles. Runaway slaves started arriving before the colonists had finished clearing fields and building their own wood frame houses. One man named David Thomas had escaped with his daughter and three grandchildren. In 1850, a group of 17 arrived asking to join the black Seminoles. In 1851, there were 356 black people living at the colony, and three-quarters of them were runaway slaves. 
At a moment's notice, all the adult males had to be ready to fight against the Comanches or Apaches, arguably the most formidable Native American warriors on the continent. In her book, Baumgartner describes the early morning scene at the outset of a military campaign. Bright kerchief heads appeared in the low doorways of the houses. Women unhobbled the horses, slipping bits into their mouths. Then the men emerged, a powder horn and a bullet pouch slung across the shoulder, a machete or a horse pistol in hand. The black Seminoles, known as Moscogos in Mexico, had a well-earned reputation as superb trackers and fighters. On foot or on horseback, according to the historian Kenneth Porter, who gathered their oral histories in the 1940s, the stronger men would use muskets as clubs. They beat down buffalo hide shields, splintered land shafts, and rammed the iron rod stocks into their enemies' astonished faces. Others used machetes to hack off spear and lance points and then decapitate their foes. In a battle known in the oral history as the Big Fight, 30 or 40 black Seminoles defeated a much larger force of Comanches and Apaches, and much of the fighting was hand-to-hand combat. Descendants of the black Seminoles and the runaways who joined them are still living in the town of El Nacimiento de los Negros, literally the birth of the blacks in northeast Coahuila. Every year on June 19th, they stage a celebration with dancing and barbecues. The women dress up in long polka dot pioneer dresses. The children sing songs in an old African-American dialect of English that can be found in Negro spirituals. Only recently, according to Baumgartner, did the villagers learn their tradition is connected to Juneteenth, which celebrates the end of slavery in the United States. In Nacimiento, it's called Dia de los Negros, or Day of the Black, she says. In Porter's unpublished oral histories, which Baumgartner was thrilled to find in an archive at the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City, people in El Nacimiento describe cultural traditions that date back to slavery. Even though they're in a Catholic country with a priest posted in their community to make sure they're good Catholics, they're still celebrating the marriage ceremony by jumping over the broomstick, says Baumgartner. Thanks to Porter, Baumgartner was able to conjure the lives of the black Seminoles and the runaways in their colony. But she found no detailed source material about other African-Americans in Mexico and has failed to find any other descendants. Many of them took Spanish names and married into Mexican families, she says. And the Mexican government stopped keeping track of anyone's race in 1821 with official documentation. With enslavers... Texas Rangers, bounty hunters, and slave catchers all crossing the border to kidnap runaways in Mexico, the last thing black refugees wanted to do was advertise their presence. They lived as discreetly as possible. They evaded enslavers. For the same reason they're evading historians, says Baumgartner, it's hard to get too mad about that. A mockingbird calls from a mesquite tree in the graveyard as the sun sets over the Rio Grande. The manicured hand of Diana Cardenas goes back into her folder of photographs and produces a portrait of a handsome, broad-faced black man in work clothes and a well-worn hat. Cardenas stares at the photograph, wishing she knew more about this man who escaped bondage by fleeing south through Texas, yet did not take the final step of crossing the river. I don't have his name, but my grandfather told me this man stayed here and married into one of the local Hispanic families, she says. He took a Hispanic last name and his children grew up speaking Spanish. 
She doesn't know how many runaway slaves passed through the Jackson Ranch on their way to Mexico. But from her grandmother's story, she estimates several dozen at least, and perhaps a hundred. Dozens more stayed and married into local families, she says. Not everyone wants to admit it, but there's a lot of African blood around here, and most of it came from the runaway slaves who stayed. A few miles downriver, in another small family cemetery, two women tell the story of a white man named John Weber. He came to Mexican Texas as a single man and settled near Austin in Weber's Prairie, which later became Weberville, says Rose Ann Bachagarza, a historian. He fell in love with his neighbor's slave, Sylvia Hector, and had children with her. He emancipated her in 1834, married her, and purchased the freedom of their children. After the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed, Weber moved his family to the lower Rio Grande Valley and bought 8,856 acres of land in 1853. Like the Jackson Ranch, it became a stopping place for runaway slaves going to Mexico, says Sofia Bravo, a direct descendant of Weber and Hector's. Barcha Garza adds, John and Sylvia built a ferry landing and licensed a ferry that went across to the Mexican side of the Rio Grande. It was useful for his business. He was a trader and also for ferrying runaways. I'm very proud of my great-great-grandfather, says Bravo. It took guts to marry a black woman and bring her here. He provided for her and her children, and he didn't care what race you are. Glancing around the muddy cemetery at the graves of her ancestors, who include Caucasian Spaniards, African Americans, and indigenous Mexicans, she adds, I'm the same way. We all fit in the same size hole when we're dead. There are several photographs, maps, and drawings that go along with this story about Africans who escaped slavery in the United States by heading to Mexico. First is a photograph of a narrow dirt road winding through trees and underbrush. The caption reads, A trail winds through the notoriously inhospitable brush country along the U.S.-Mexico border known as the Nueces Strip. Next is a photograph of a woman with light brown hair and wearing a white blouse blue jeans, and white sketcher running shoes. She is in a cemetery and kneeling at a gravesite. The caption reads, Diana Cardenas, at the grave of her great-great-grandfather, Nathaniel Jackson, a white settler who owned a ranch in Texas near the Rio Grande. The next photograph is a close-up of an old photograph. The photograph is cradled in the hands of Miss Cardenas. Miss Cardenas's fingernails are painted red, and there is a single silver bracelet on her left wrist. The caption reads, Cardenas holds a photograph of her great-great-great-grandmother, Matilda Hicks, a former slave. Hicks and husband Jackson helped many black people flee slavery. The next photograph is of three farm workers in a field of green plants that are knee-high. The men appear to be chopping weeds with hoes. The caption reads, workers tend to onion crops on land that was once part of the Jackson Ranch near Far, Texas. The East Texas border town now connects by bridge to the Mexican city of Reynosa. The next image is a black and white photograph of an older black man. He is seated on porch steps and is wearing a white shirt with a vest and jeans with big cuffs. He is holding a walking stick and has white hair and a white mustache. The caption reads, Felix Haywood, who was enslaved in Texas, recalled hearing tales of those who escaped to Mexico. 
they got on all right, he told an interviewer in 1937. Next is a map of Texas. It shows the routes Africans took through Texas to get to northeastern Mexico from Arkansas, Louisiana, and Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma. The caption reads, Black people enslaved in the United States improvised several routes to Mexico in pursuit of freedom. After that is a color photograph of the Rio Grande River. The caption reads, The last, often lethal obstacle, the Rio Grande, shown near land owned by Nathaniel Jackson and John Weber, who ferried many enslaved people across. The last image I'm going to describe is that of a drawing of a man standing on a riverbank. The man is wearing leggings and has a long knife in his waistband and is wearing a headband with seven feathers in it. At the bottom of the drawing, it reads, Go for John, Seminole Interpreter. The caption reads, the black Seminole leader John Horse, who helped lead black and native Seminoles to Mexico where the government gave them land in exchange for military service. That was a reading of the article, South to the Promised Land, which appeared in Smithsonian Magazine and its July 2022 edition. It was written by Richard Grant. Our next story for today's African American Hour is from Vogue Magazine and the Vogue.com website. The title is Serena Williams says farewell to tennis on her own terms and in her own words. It was written by Serena Williams as told to Rob Haskell. This appeared in the August 9th, 2022 edition of Vogue.com. This morning, my daughter Olympia, who turns five this month, and I were on our way to get her a new passport before a trip to Europe. We're in my car and she's holding my phone using an interactive educational app she likes. This robot voice asks her a question. What do you want to be when you grow up? She doesn't know I'm listening, but I can hear the answer she whispers into the phone. She says, I want to be a big sister. Olympia says this a lot, even when she knows I'm listening. Sometimes before bed, she prays to Jehovah to bring her a baby sister. She doesn't want anything to do with a boy. I'm the youngest of five sisters myself, and my sisters are my heroes. So this has felt like a moment I need to listen very carefully to. Believe me, I never wanted to have to choose between tennis and a family. I don't think it's fair. If I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. Maybe I'd be more of a Tom Brady if I had that opportunity. Don't get me wrong. I love being a woman, and I loved every second of being pregnant with Olympia. I was one of those annoying women who adored being pregnant and was working until the day I had to report to the hospital, although things got super complicated on the other side, and I almost did do the impossible. A lot of people don't realize that I was two months pregnant when I won the Australian Open in 2017, but I'm turning 41 this month, and something's got to give. I have never liked the word retirement. It doesn't feel like a modern word to me. I've been thinking of this as a transition, but I want to be sensitive about how I use that word, which means something very specific and important to a community of people. Maybe the best word to describe what I'm up to is evolution. I'm here to tell you that I'm evolving away from tennis toward other things that are important to me. 
A few years ago, I quietly started Serena Ventures, a venture capital firm. Soon after that, I started a family. I want to grow that family. But I've been reluctant to admit to myself or anyone else that I have to move on from playing tennis. Alexis, my husband, and I have hardly talked about it. It's like a taboo subject. I can't even have this conversation with my mom and dad. It's like it's not real until you say it out loud. It comes up, I get an uncomfortable lump in my throat, and I start to cry. The only person I've gone there with is my therapist. One thing I'm not going to do is sugarcoat this. I know that a lot of people are excited about and looking forward to retirement, and I really wish I felt that way. Ashley Barty was number one in the world when she left the sport this March. I believe she really felt ready to move on. Carolyn Wozniak, who was one of my best friends, felt a sense of relief when she retired in 2020. Praise to these people, but I'm going to be honest. There is no happiness in this topic for me. I know it's not the usual thing to say, but I feel a great deal of pain. It's the hardest thing I could ever imagine. I hate it. I hate that I have to be at this crossroads. I keep saying to myself, I wish it could be easy for me, but it's not. I'm torn. I don't want it to be over, but at the same time, I'm ready for what's next. I know how I'm going to be able to look at this magazine when it comes out, knowing that this is it, the end of a story that started in Compton, California, with a little black girl who just wanted to play tennis. This sport has given me so much. I love to win. I love the battle. I love to entertain. I'm not sure every player sees it that way, but I love the performance aspect of it, to be able to entertain people week after week. Some of the happiest moments in my life were spent waiting in the hallway in Melbourne and walking out into Rod Laver Arena with my earphones in and trying to stay focused and drown out the noise, but still feeling the energy of the crowd. Night matches in Arthur Ashe Stadium at Flushing Meadows. Hitting an ace on set point. My whole life up to now has been tennis. My dad says I first picked up a racket when I was three, but I think it was even earlier. There's a picture of Venus pushing me in a stroller on a tennis court, and I couldn't have been more than 18 months. Unlike Venus, who's always been stoic and classy, I've never been one to contain my emotions. I remember learning to write my alphabet from kindergarten and not doing it perfectly and crying all night. I was so angry about it. I'd erase and rewrite that A over and over, and my mother let me stay up all night while my sisters were in bed. That's always been me. I want to be great. I want to be perfect. I know perfect doesn't exist, but whatever perfect was, I never wanted to stop until I got it right. To me, that's kind of the essence of being Serena, expecting the best from myself and proving people wrong. There were so many matches I won because something made me angry or someone counted me out. That drove me. I built a career on channeling anger and negativity and turning it into something good. My sister Venus once said that when someone out there says you can't do something, it's because they can't do it. But I did do it, and so can you. If you watched King Richard, then you know that when I was little, I was not very good at tennis. I was so sad when I didn't get all the early opportunities that Venus got, but that helped me. It made me work harder, turning me into a savage fighter. I traveled to tournaments with Venus as her hitting partner, and if there was an open slot, I'd play. I followed her around all the world and watched her. 
When she lost, I understood why, and I made sure I wouldn't lose the same way. That's when I started to move up so fast in the rankings because I learned from the lessons from Venus's losses instead of the hard way from my own. It was as if I were playing her matches too. I'm a good mimic. Growing up, I tried to copy Pete Sampras. I loved Monica Sellis, and then I studied Monica Sellis. I watched, I listened, then I attacked. But if I hadn't been in Venus's shadow, I would never be who I am. When someone said I was just the little sister, that's when I got really fired up. I started playing tennis with the goal of winning the U.S. Open. I didn't think past that, and then I just kept winning. I remember when I passed Martina Hingis's Grand Slam count, then Celis's, and then I tied Billie Jean King, who is such an inspiration for me because of how she has pioneered gender equality in all sports. Then it was climbing over the Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova mountain. There are people out there who say I'm not the greatest of all time because I didn't pass Margaret Court's record of 24 Grand Slam titles, which she achieved before the open era that began in 1968. I'd be lying if I said I didn't want that record. Obviously I do. But day to day, I'm really not thinking about her. If I'm in a Grand Slam final, then yes, I am thinking about that record. Maybe I thought about it too much and that didn't help. The way I see it, I should have had 30 plus Grand Slams. I had my chances after coming back from giving birth. I went from a C-section to a second pulmonary embolism to a Grand Slam final. I played while breastfeeding. I played through postpartum depression, but I didn't get there. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. I didn't show up the way I should have or could have, but I showed up 23 times and that's fine. Actually, it's extraordinary. But these days, if I have to choose between building my tennis resume and building my family, I choose the latter. Earlier in my career, I never thought about having kids. There were times when I've wondered if I should ever bring kids into this world with all its problems. I was never that confident or comfortable about babies or children, and I figured that if I ever did have a baby, I would have people taking care of it 24-7. I'm not going to lie. I definitely have a lot of support, but I'm also an incredibly hands-on mother. My husband will tell you I am too hands-on. In five years, Olympia has only spent one 24-hour period away from me. This past year, when I was recovering from a hamstring injury, I got to pick her up from school four or five days a week, and I always look forward to seeing her face light up when she walked out of the building and saw me waiting there for her. The fact is that nothing is a sacrifice for me when it comes to Olympia. It all just makes sense. I want to teach her how to tie her shoes, how to read, where babies come from, and about God. Just like my mom taught me. As she grows, is something different every month. Lately, she's been into watching baking shows, which we do together. Now we bake with Play-Doh, which is so much fun. She loves this game called The Floor is Lava, where you have to do whatever you can to avoid touching the ground. I love setting up in my gym for the game, arranging my step-up boxes and weight machines like an obstacle course. Whatever she likes, I like. I think tennis, by comparison, has always felt like a sacrifice, though it's one I enjoyed making. 
When you're younger, you see kids having fun and you want to do that stuff, but you know you have to be on the court hoping that one day it will all pay off. I got pushed hard by my parents. Nowadays, so many parents say, let your kids do what they want. Well, that's not what got me where I am. I didn't rebel as a kid. I worked hard and I followed the rules. I do want to push Olympia, not in tennis, but in whatever captures her interest. But I don't want to push too hard. I'm still trying to figure out that balance. In my own life, the balance has been slowly shifting towards Serena Ventures. I always say that I'm a sponge. At night, I go to bed and I squeeze myself out so that the next day I can take up as much new information as I can. Every morning, I'm so excited to walk downstairs to my office and jump into Zooms and start reviewing decks of companies we're considering investing in. We're a small but growing firm of six people scattered between Florida, where I mainly live, Texas, and California. I started investing nine years ago, and I really fell in love with early stage, whether it's pre-seed funding, where you're investing in just an idea, or seed, where the idea has already been turned into a product. I wrote one of the very first checks for Masterclass. It's one of 16 unicorns, companies valued at more than $1 billion, that Serena Ventures has funded, along with Tono Impossible Foods, Noom, and Ususu, capital E-S-U-S-U, to name a few. This year, we raised $11 million of outside financing from banks, private individuals, and family offices. 78% of our portfolio happens to be companies started by women and people of color because that's who we are. On the other hand, my husband is white, and it's important to me to be inclusive of everyone. Serena Ventures has been an all-female business until recently when we brought in our first guy, a diversity hire. A few years ago, I was at a conference organized by J.P. Morgan Chase where I watched a talk between Jamie Dimon and Karen Seatman Becker, the CEO of the security company Clear. Karen explained that less than 2% of all venture capital money went to women. I figured that she misspoke, I thought. There is no way that 98% of that capital is going to men. I approached her afterward and she confirmed it. I kind of understood then and there that someone who looks like me needs to start writing the big checks. Sometimes, like attracts like. Men are writing those big checks to one another, and in order for us to change that, more people who look like me need to be in that position, giving money back to themselves. I'm so grateful to women like Karen, as well as Sheryl Sandberg and others who have mentored me. It's important to have women like those who believe in you and push you to think bigger and do bigger. In the last year, Alexis and I have been trying to have another child, and we recently got some information from my doctor that put my mind at ease and made me feel that whenever we're ready, we can add to our family. I definitely don't want to be pregnant again as an athlete. I need to be two feet into tennis or two feet out. This spring, I had the itch to get back on the court for the first time in seven months. I was talking to Tiger Woods, who's a friend, and I told him I needed his advice on my tennis career. I said, I don't know what to do. I think I'm over it, but maybe I'm not over it. He's Tiger. He was adamant that I be a beast the same way he is. He said, Serena, what if you just gave it two weeks? You don't have to commit to anything. You just go out on the court every day for two weeks and give it your all and see what happens. I said, all right, I think I can do that. 
but I didn't do it. But a month later, I gave it a try, and it felt magical to pick up a racket again. I was good. I was really good. I went back and forth about whether to play Wimbledon and the U.S. Open after that. As I've said, this whole evolution thing has not been easy for me. I don't particularly like to think about my legacy. I get asked about it a lot, and I never know exactly what to say. But I'd like to think that thanks to opportunities afforded me, women athletes feel that they can be themselves on the court. They can play with aggression and pump their fists. They can be strong yet beautiful. They can wear what they want and say what they want and kick butt and be proud of it all. I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. Mistakes are learning experiences, and I embrace those moments. I'm far from perfect, and I've also taken a lot of criticism, and I'd like to think that I went through some hard times as a professional tennis player so that the next generation could have it easier. Over the years, I hope that people come to think of me as symbolizing something bigger than tennis. I admire Billie Jean because she's transcended her sport. I'd like it to be Serena is this, and she's that, and she was a great tennis player, and she won those grand slams. Unfortunately, I wasn't ready to win Wimbledon this year, and I don't know if I will be ready to win New York, but I'm going to try, and the lead-up tournaments will be fun. I know there's a fan fantasy that I might have tried Margaret that day in London that maybe beat her record in New York, and then at the trophy ceremony say, see ya, I get that. It's a good fantasy, but I'm not looking for some ceremonial final on the court moment. I'm terrible at goodbyes, the world's worst. But please know that I am more grateful for you than I can ever express in words. You have carried me to so many wins and so many trophies. I'm going to miss that version of me, that girl who played tennis. And I'm going to miss you. That was a reading of the article, Serena Williams Says Farewell to Tennis on Her Own Terms and in Her Own Words. It appeared in Vogue magazine's Vogue.com website. It was written by Serena Williams and Rob Haskell and was published August 9th, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African-American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.